Well, tonight, if you were here on Sunday morning or listened, Jeremy Getting Place, it's about Corey Ten Boom and her family and how they assisted Jews and all kinds of people that the Nazis would target in Holland, helping them get to places in the countryside where they'd be safe, could live in hiding, and even had some live there at their home with them, talked about how they constructed a secret room, and then it also talks about how after their capture what they endured in German prison camps. A while back I encountered this book because of another book I was reading. The other book I was reading was called The Barbarian Way, and he was talking about a phrase, the safest place to be is in the square in the middle of the will of God, and how he always, how he never really liked that phrase because safety is not really something that we're promised. But he talked about how when he learned the uh, origin of that phrase that we use so often was from Betsy Ten Boom, somebody who had lived in the middle of these Nazi, not, and died in the middle of these Nazi prison camps, was then saying that the safest place for us to be is square in the middle of the will of God. It means something very different. But when I was reading his explanation, the Lord put it on my heart to read this book. I just knew that there was something special in it for me. I kind of encountered it by the work of the Holy Spirit probably two or three months ago. And tonight we're kind of going to do a parallel study. If you've ever read a, a parallel Bible, it's one where it's got a King James or one version on one half of the side of the page and then another version on the other half. We're going to do a little bit of that, but with using the hiding place next to the Bible. We're going to start, I'm going to read a quick story and then share something that the Holy Spirit wrote on my heart because of it. And then it's this one's short and then we're going to do a little bit of a longer reading that will have several scripture references. And then I'll share kind of the big revelation at the end. So don't leave early. The big one's at the end. So... This is just to set the scene of this quick reading. It's at the beginning. There, as Jeremy shared on Sunday, there are watchmakers, watch repair people, uh, repairs persons, I guess if you said it in today's language. And they kept the shop open even during the occupation because it was a means of access for people to basically engage in the underground services that they were providing. And it was very difficult to kind of build this network to help get people out of danger. And she's sharing in this reading how basically they recruited. So this is a young policeman that's come in to the watch repair shop. Friday, just before noon, closing, when the shop was crowded, a policeman pushed open the street door, hesitated, and then continued back into the rear of the room. It was Rolf van Vliet the officer who had been here when our ration cards were first delivered. He took off his cap and noticed again that the startling orange hair. This watch is still not keeping time, Rolf said. He took off his wristwatch, placed it on my workbench, and leaned forward. Was he saying something? It was all I could do to hear. Harry Van Rees will be taken to Amsterdam tomorrow. If you want to see him, come promptly at three this afternoon. And then... Do you see? The second hand still hesitates at the top of the dial. At three that afternoon, Cotto, who is the wife of the man that Rolf just mentioned, and I stepped through the tall double doors of the police station. 
The policeman on duty at the guard post was Rolf himself. Come with me, he said gruffly. He led us through the door along the high ceiling corridor. At a locked metal gate, he stopped. Wait here, Rolf said. Someone on the other side opened the gate and Rolf passed through. He was gone several minutes. Then the door opened again and we were face to face with Harry. Rolf stood back as Harry took Cato into his arms. You have only a few seconds, whispered Rolf. They drew apart, looked into each other's eyes. I'm sorry, said Rolf. He'll have to go back. Harry kissed his wife. And then he took my hand, shook it solemnly. Tears filled our eyes. For the first time, Harry spoke. I shall use this place wherever they're taking us. <clears throat> he said, it will be my witness. Stand for Jesus. Rolf took Harry by the elbow. We will pray for you many times every day, Harry, I cried at the gate as the gate swung shut. An instinct which I shared with no one told me that this was the last time we would ever see our friend, the bulldog. That night we had a meeting about Rolf, Betsy and I, and a dozen or so teenage boys and girls who had acted as messengers for this work. If Rolf had risked his own safety to tell us about Harry's transport, perhaps he should work with us. Lord Jesus, I said aloud, this could be a danger for all of us and for Rolf too. But even with the words came a flood of assurance about this man. How long, I wondered, would we be led by this gift of knowledge? As I read that very specific mention of one of the gifts of the Spirit that's listed by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, and we're going to read those scriptures in just a second, it struck me how dependent they were on the Holy Spirit in matters of life and death. It was so acute in their everyday life. If they had prayed and been wrong about Rolf, he would have reported them. They would have been reported. Anybody arrested, anybody in the house would have been arrested and all ended up in death camps, especially those that were Jewish. And so when they sat down and prayed and said, Lord Jesus, tell us if this man can be trusted. And that rush of relief, that rush of, rush of peace and understanding and comfort came over them. Their trust in it was life and death. It was the gift of knowledge from the Holy Spirit that this one or that one could be trusted. And like I said, it was in acute focus. It was like there was no veil over it. It was life and death. What struck me when I read it is how it's still life and death. These gifts of the Spirit that we've been entrusted with, each one and however the Spirit gives, it's still a matter of life and death. We've made it obtuse. We've removed the life and deathness of our daily Christian walk. But we have been entrusted with the light of the world, with life himself. And the lost, those that are around us, walking around in darkness and death, it is a, the only way we reach the heart of men and women around us is through the work of the Holy Spirit. The only way that we can walk in a winning, I guess if you want to use that word, fashion in this battle of life and death is dependency upon the Holy Spirit, listening to his leadership. So I want to read this list in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because when I read it here, I went back and read it, and it had a new importance as he's listing these gifts. He's listing things that are saving lives. It's not just so that we can stand back and say, oh, isn't God awesome, or that was amazing, I've never seen that before, or isn't it neat how he made everything fall together? These things that he's given us are really our weapons 
and things that we are to depend on in this fight of life and death. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. You know that ye were Gentiles, carried away unto these dumb idols, even as you were led. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed, and that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now there are diverse gifts, but by the same Spirit. And there are different differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operation, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the work of miracles, and to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, and to another diverse kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But all works that one and the self-same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. You know, I think we have a tendency, even now, even in what we've experienced with the Holy Spirit in the last years that Dad's been here and and however long you've been coming to this church during that nine years, we have a tendency still to think of the gifts of the Holy Spirit as parlor tricks and as things that aren't of the utmost importance to the like last breath, breath of life and death. You know, we still think of them as neat things. And I think maybe even I thought that way still a little bit. But when I read that and that phrase hit me, how long would we be led by this gift of knowledge? Corey Ten Boom understood so well that that gift of knowledge from the Holy Spirit that there was leading this entire effort to save these people and to keep them safe and to keep their, her family safe. That was all. That was all that was surrounding them. That was all that was protecting them, protecting them, and it was all that was providing this victory for the people they're protecting. And to me, I pray and ask that the Lord would return that importance. That I would wake up every day with the knowledge that life and death hangs in the balance of me clearly hearing the Holy Spirit and being obedient to His leadership. Because it's only then can I really walk with him in the way that he wants me to in the way that he wants any of us okay this reading is going to be a little bit longer the reason why we're going to read a little bit longer is I, I want you to see the again the dependence on the Holy Spirit they have just arrived at Ravensbuck it's the um, prison camp in Germany where they were held um, and it's just an account of their first days there Morning roll call at Ravensbuck came half an hour earlier than it bought. By 4.30 we had to be standing outside in the black pre-dawn chill, standing at parade attention, in blocks of 100 women, 10 wide and 10 deep. Sometimes after hours of this, we would gain the shelter of the barracks only to hear the whistle. Everybody out. Fall in for roll call. Barracks 8 was in the quarantine compound next to us, perhaps as a deliberate warning to newcomers. We were located the punishment barracks. From there, all day long and often into the night, came the sounds of hell itself. They were not the sounds of anger or of any human emotion, but of a cruelty altogether detached, blows landing in regular rhythm, screams keeping pace. We would stand in our ten deep ranks, 
with our hands trembling at our sides, longing to jam them against our ears to make the sound stop. The instant of dismissal, we would mob the door of barracks ache, stepping on each other's heels in our eagerness to get inside, to shrink the world back to understandable proportions. It grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. Will you carry this too, Lord Jesus? But as the rest of the world grew stranger, one thing became increasingly clear. And that was the reason the two of us were here. Why others should suffer, we were not shown. As for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. So just a side note, in a somewhat miraculous fashion, they had received a tiny New Testament in a little pouch that they wore around their neck and it hung between their shoulder blades. That's how they kept it hidden. Because their shoulder blades were so pronounced from being so thin that you couldn't see it dangling back there. So that's the Bible that they're talking about. As for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the center of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. Like waves clustered around a blazing fire, we gathered about it, holding out our hearts to its warmth and light. The blacker the night around us grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the Word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I would look about us as Betsy read, watching the light leap from face to face. More than conquerors. It was not a wish. It was a fact. We knew it. We experienced it minute by minute. Poor, hated, and hungry. We were more than conquerors. Not we shall be. We are. Life in Ravensbuck took place on two separate levels. Mutually impossible. One, the observable external life, grew every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God, grew daily better. Truth upon truth, glory upon glory. Sometimes I would slip the Bible from its little sack with hands that shook. So mysterious had it become to me. It was new. It had just been written. I marveled sometimes that the ink was dry. I had believed the Bible always, but reading it now had nothing to do with belief. It was simply a description of the way things were, of hell and of heaven, of how men act and how God acts. I had read a thousand times the story of Jesus' arrest, how soldiers had slapped him, laughed at him, flogged him. Now such happenings had faces and voices. Fridays, the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. The hospital corridor in which we waited was unheated and a fall chill had settled into the walls. Still, we were forbidden even to wrap ourselves in our own arms, but had to maintain our erect, hands-at-sides position as we filed slowly past a phalanx of grinning guards. How there could have been any pleasure in the sight of these thick, thin legs and hunger-gloated stomachs, I could not imagine. Surely there is no more wretched sight than the human body unloved and uncared for. Nor could I see the necessity for complete undressing. When we finally reached the examining room, a doctor looked down our each throat, another, a dentist presumably, at our teeth, a third in between each finger. And that was all. 
we trooped again down the long, cold corridor and picked up our X-marked dresses at the door. But it was one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another page in the Bible leapt into life for me. He hung naked on the cross. I had not known, or I had not thought. The paintings, the carved crucifixes, showed at least a scrap of cloth. But this, I suddenly knew, was the respect and reverence of the artist. But at the time itself, on that other Friday morning, there had been no reverence. No more than I saw in the faces around us now. I leaned toward Betsy, ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp and thin between her blue mottled skin. Betsy, they took his clothes too. Ahead of me, I heard a little gasp. No, Corey. And I never thanked him. In the King James Version, it's the coat that they're talking about, not the undergarment. Jesus, they took all of his clothes. It was his coat that was seamless. And so he hung on the the cross naked. Every day, the sun rose a little later. The bite took longer to leave the air. It will be better, everyone assured everyone else, when we move into permanent barracks. We'll have a blanket apiece, a bed of our own. Each of us painted into the picture her own greatest need. For me, it was a dispensary where Betsy could get medication for her cough. There'll be a nurse assigned to the barracks. I said it so often that I convinced myself. I was doling out a drop of divitamin each morning on her piece of black bread. But how much longer could that small bottle last? Especially, I would tell her, if you keep sharing it around every time someone sneezes. The move to permanent quarters came the second week in October. We were marched ten abreast along a wide cinder avenue and then into a narrowed street of barracks. Several times the column halted while numbers were called out. Names were never used at Ravensbrook. At last, Betsy and mine were called. Prisoner 66729, Prisoner 66730. We stepped out of line with a dozen or so others, and stared at the long gray front of Barracks 28. Half its windows seemed to have been broken and replaced with rags. A door in the center led us into a large room where 200 or more women bent over knitting needles, and tables between them were piles of woolen socks and army gray. On either side doors opened into two larger rooms still, by far the largest dormitories we had yet seen. Betsy and I followed a prisoner guide through the door at the right, Because of the broken windows, the vast room was in semi-twilight. Our noses told us, first, that the place was filthy. Somewhere plumbing had backed up, and the bedding was soiled and rancid. Then, as our eyes adjusted to the gloom, we saw that there was no individual beds at all, but great square piers stacked three high and wedged side by side and end to end, with only an occasional narrow aisle slicing through. We followed our guide, single file. The aisle was not wide enough for two. Fighting back the claustrophobia of these platforms rising everywhere above us, the tremendous room was nearly empty of people. They must have been out on various work crews. At last she pointed to a second tier in the center of a large level. To reach it, we had to stand on the bottom platform, haul ourselves up, and then crawl across three other straw-covered platforms to reach the one that we would share with how many? The deck above us was too close for us to sit up. We lay back, struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. We could hear the women who arrived with us finding their places. Suddenly I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Someone had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, the place is swarming with them. 
We scrambled across the intervening platforms, heads low to avoid another bump, dropped down to the aisle, and edged our way to a patch of light. Here, and here another one, I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us. Show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly, it took me a second to realize she was praying. More and more the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she said excitedly, he gave us the answer before we asked, as he always does. In the Bible this morning, where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the long, dim aisle to make sure no guard was in, in sight, then drew the Bible from its pouch. It was in First Thessalonians, I said. We were on our third complete reading of the New Testament since leaving the prison they were in before. In the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to another and to all. It seemed written expressly for Ravensbrook. Go on, said Betsy. That wasn't all. Oh, yes. To another one and to all. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We can start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her. Then around me at the dark, foul-aired room. Such as, I said, such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Oh yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord. There had been no inspection when we entered here. Thank you for all the women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for every crowding here. Since we're packed so close, then many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed crowd stuff, packed, suffocating crowds. Thank you, Betsy went on serenely, for the fleas and for the fleas. That was too much. Betsy, there's no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are a part of this place where God has put us. So we stood between piers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time, I was sure Betsy was wrong. I'm going to flip over and read another little excerpt. Betsy has been in the hospital and... Corey's been looking for her. She returns to the bunks and finds her. Corey! Betsy was sitting up in a cot near the window. She looked stronger, eyes bright, a touch of color in her sunken cheeks. No nurse or doctor had seen her yet, she said, but the chance to lie still and stay indoors had already made a difference. Three days afterwards, Betsy returned to barracks 28. She still had received no examination or medicine of any kind, and her forehead felt feverish to my touch. But the joy of having her back outweighed my anxiety. Best of all, as a result of her hospitalization, she was given a permanent assignment to the knitting brigade, the women we had seen that very first day seated about the tables in the center of room. The work was reserved for the weakest prisoners and now overflowed into the dormitories as well. Those working in the sleeping rooms received far less supervision than those at the tables, and Betsy found herself with most of the day in which to minister to those around her. She was a lightning knitter, who completed her quota of songs long before noon. She kept her Bible with her and spent hours each day reading aloud from it, moving from platform to platform. One evening I got back to the barracks late from a wood-gathering foray outside the walls. 
a light snow lay on the ground and it was hard to find the sticks and twigs with which a small stove was kept going. Betsy was waiting for me, as always, so that we could wait through the food line together. Her eyes were twinkling. You're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, I told her. You know, we've never understood why we had so much freedom in the big room, she said. Well, I've found out. That afternoon, she said there had been a confusion in her knitting group about sock sizes, and they'd asked the supervisor to come and settle it. But she wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door, and neither would the guards. And you know why? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice. Because of the fleas. That's why, she said, the place is crawling with fleas. My mind rushed back to our first hour in this place. I remembered Betsy's bowed head, remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could see no use for. In reading the pages of this story, over and over again, Scripture came up. And the way she described it, over and over again, Scripture was brought to them by the Holy Spirit. Not just they sat and read and memorized it, but that it was brought with power to their remembrance at exactly the right moment. It struck me again, it's something that we know, but it's something that we have to hold on to and make sure it's real for us. But in this word, in this Bible, is every answer, encouragement, and right perspective we need. And it can be found when we read it in a spirit-led experience. When we don't just read it to know it, or it's important to read it and know what's in the pages. That's not what I'm saying. But when we sit down with this book to say, Holy Spirit, write this on my heart. Holy Spirit, write this in the deepest recesses of my soul. Because there will be a moment, there will be a day when I need it. Bring it back to me and write it deep in me so in that day you can pull it back. You can bring it to my remembrance. Jesus said, I'll send you the Comforter in John 15. I'll send you the Comforter and He will teach you all things. He will bring to your remembrance all things that I have said. That wasn't just true for the twelve or the eleven standing in that circle at that moment. That's true for every believer. It's true for every one of us. It's important to know this, to spend time in it, to read it, but not just to read it, to sit down with the Holy Spirit and experience it. Part of the reason why I wanted to read, especially Acts chapter 16, is it described Paul's incarceration and it described the condition of Corey's incarceration. The thing that hit me most powerfully when I was reading this book is that the book of Acts never ended. I love the book of Acts. I'm not going to rank it. But I love it. It's like the New Testament's version of Genesis through Psalms. But those are books of history, and they stop. What I love about the book of Acts is it's still going. And here's another chapter. This is a part of the book of Acts. We can look around at each other's stories. We can read biographies of great people of faith. I love reading about revivalists and about revivals and those that were involved in them. It's like reading the book of Acts. It's the same thing. We think that everything that we experience is so new, but their experience in Ravensbrück was just like Paul's experience as he was hanging with his feet above his head, laying on his back with his hair and up to his ears in filth and sewage. Like, that's how they were praising. That's how they were singing songs of victory. It wasn't, you know, the five-star resorts of prisons today. Comparatively, it was a cave in which there was no plumbing. It was the pit. Not the pits. It was the pit. I love the book of Acts because it just it doesn't end. As long as the Spirit is moving, 
as long as, as we are listening and obeying, the book of Acts is still being written. I went today, just as I was thinking about what I wanted to share today, um, and read the last verses of Acts 28, verses 30 and 31. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. As I read that, the Holy Spirit kind of superimposed my grandmother over those two verses. And it read in my heart like this. And Mary dwelt 84 whole years on this earth and received all that came unto her, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding her. That's why I love the book of Acts. That's why I love reading these. That's why I love the fact that we get to walk with the Holy Spirit. And I want to end with Galatians chapter 5. We've just got a couple of minutes left. But let's flip over. We all know that the fruits of the Spirit are listed there. But I just want to read this short verse at the end. Verse 25. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. We claim, rightfully so, in the truth given to us through Jesus Christ, that we are alive in the Spirit. When we are resurrected in Him, we are alive in the Spirit and we have the opportunity to say, Holy Spirit, dwell in us, move in us, live in us. And I love this short phrase because I've always just read it together. If we live in the Spirit, let's also walk in the Spirit. Missing the true essence of what Paul is writing. He's giving us a challenge. We know the truth that we live in the Spirit. Let's walk in the Spirit. I love Betsy's story in this. It must have been so hard for her to live. I cannot even imagine to die in a Nazi prison camp. Such things are beyond imagining. You know, Jeremy shared a story on Sunday morning about how the snake, one of their guards, named that way for the shiny dress she wore. She and uh, Corey and Betsy observed her beating a, they called them innocent, but mentally handicapped. And Corey made the comment, oh, that after this, we could have a home for them to protect them and to heal them. And Betsy said, oh, yes, we could help them and show them that love is greater. And Corey says, well, it wasn't until later in the day that she realized while she was speaking of the invalid, of that innocent person, Betsy was speaking of the persecutor, that we could teach them that love is greater. I loved reading her story because... For her, she answered that call. I live in the Spirit, therefore I will walk by the Spirit. I will see all things as the Spirit sees all things. I will pray without ceasing. I will love those that persecute me. That's walking by the Spirit stuff. It's the life, the kind of life, that keeps the book of Acts going. It's a hard prayer to pray because you realize the possible ramifications of such a prayer to say I know I'm alive in the Spirit and whatever it looks like I want to walk by the Spirit because it it may take me square into the middle of a Nazi death camp I mean I can't travel back in time but that's where I may go I don't know if you guys saw the picture but there was a picture of a man I can't remember his first name his last name is Eubanks and he was carrying a Syrian child 
away from her mother who had been killed. She found the, the girl playing dead, hiding against her dead mother. And he carried her to safety. I heard a newscast this morning about him. And the amazing thing about him is that it's not just him there. His wife is there and his children are there in Syria in the middle of this civil war zone. And when asked why, he said very clearly, this is what God spoke for our family. So they're living in the midst of that, helping where they can. That's how he put it. The Lord put it on our hearts to help where we can and to be here in the midst of this place. When we pray the prayer and answer that call, I live by the Spirit. I want to walk by the Spirit. Our walk may take us there. But I think if you asked Betsy and I think if you asked Corey, I think if you asked Paul and Silas, and I think in that moment when we see Jesus, it will be so clear that every step we take in walking with the Spirit will be so worth it. Worthy to be written as the continuation of chapter 28 in the book of Acts.